So without further ado, let's get started with our first talk on the evolutionary origins of human culture from Professor Bill Von Hippel. So Bill is an evolutionary psychologist and the author of the best-selling book, The Social Leap. He grew up in Alaska, got his BA at Yale and his PhD at the University of Michigan. And then he taught for a dozen years at Ohio State University. Bill then found his way to Australia where he is now a professor of psychology at the University of Queensland. He has published more than 100 articles, chapters and edited books. His research has been featured in the New York Times, USA Today, The Economist, the BBC and The Australian. Recently, Professor Von Hippel has, has been interviewed on popular podcasts such as London Rail and The Joe Rogan Experience. He lives with his wife and two children in Brisbane, Australia. So, um, Bill, it's an absolute pleasure to have you with us today, and I'm really looking forward to this. So whenever you're ready, let's just get started, okay? Thanks. Thanks for inviting me, and hello, everybody. Um, let me first um, begin with a somewhat of an apology. I'm, I'm giving this lecture from my own home, um, because like all the rest of you guys, we're still a little bit-ish on lockdown. And so, um, and it, let me apologize in advance if the dog barks or the phone rings or anything like that. Hopefully, um, the house will be reasonably under control. So, um, what I want to do in today's talk is talk about our evolutionary history. And I'm going to focus on that history since we separated from our chimpanzee cousins. So, it'll be basically the last six or seven million years. And I'll cover that in the first um, half or a little bit plus of the talk. Um, then I'll focus a little bit on what's happened since agriculture. And then in the very latter part of the talk, maybe the last third or so, I'll talk about the implications for um, that evolutionary history, that story for how we live today and how to understand how we are now. Let's see if I can get this thing to um, work properly. Okay, good. So uh, the story of human origins of our, of our separation from our common ancestors with chimpanzees um, begins here uh, in the great African Rift Valley so this is, you can consider the Rift Valley something like a geographic zipper. Basically what's happening is that Africa is splitting into two separate plates. So probably um, most or all of you are familiar with the fact, with this idea of plate tectonics and the fact that all the land masses on earth and indeed all the ground under the oceans as well, sits on these plates that shift around on the underlying mantle um, of the earth underneath. And they move around incredibly slowly, but with an enormous amount of inertia caused by the flowing um, magma, I guess you could call it, in the mantle itself. So uh, the Rift Valley is being formed by virtue of the fact that the African plate is actually tearing apart and splitting into a larger piece and a smaller piece. That larger chunk is moving up to the upper left and the smaller piece, the Somali plate, is moving off down uh, to the lower right. The, eventually, in X million years, um, Africa will be torn into two pieces unless things change. Uh, now, this has been going on for about 30 million years, and the consequence of this tectonic activity here is a lot of volcanic activity, but also a lot of upwelling on the eastern side of the Rift Valley. And that upwelling raises the um, eastern side of the plate, Tanzania, Kenya, Somalia, Ethiopia, up as high as a mile in the air. Now, by 6 million years ago, that process was relatively complete, at least representing where it is today, and complete in the sense that what used to be entirely rainforest had now dried out on the eastern side of the rift. And now all we have are small stands of trees and mostly savanna. And so what we have is a situation where our chimp-like ancestors, um, they're not exactly like today's chimps, but from all we can tell, they're very similar. Our chimp-like ancestors lived in the trees and now the trees are disappearing. So what's the consequence of that? Oops, I didn't, that's, not, <laughs> that's how I move my usual slides. Um, the consequence of that is that the, uh, 
If you look at this picture in the lower left, you can see a chimpanzee um, noodling around in the rainforest. And I particularly like that photograph because the chimp is literally jumping through the air and doing a 360 degree spin just because it can. Um, watching chimps in the trees is extraordinary. There's so much exuberance and power displayed by a group of chimpanzees when they're in the canopy. And as a consequence, chimps have no real predators when they're in their group in the canopy. Even leopards, like we see here in the upper middle, won't, um, which are, they do predate on chimps, but they won't even consider trying to get them in the trees when they're with their group. Because although leopards are superb tree climbers, a group of chimpanzees is simply too fast, too strong, and too dangerous. But when they come down onto the ground, the unfortunate consequence for them is, as you can see here in the lower right-hand image, they are small and ungainly, and they're comparatively slow. They're faster than we would be, but compared to these uh, predators, they're easy pickings. And so as the rainforest disappeared, finally disappearing about six million years ago, chimpanzees were left in a very difficult situation. On the one hand, all their food sources are disappearing. And so the kinds of fruits and leaves and things that they're used to eating in the trees are going away. On the other hand, they increasingly have to get down out of the trees to cross the savanna to try to find food opportunities. And when they do so, they're suddenly at, at a risk of predation by lions, which were never relevant to their lives at all before, by leopards, which they could largely avoid simply by staying with their group, and even by saber-toothed cats, which wandered um, the African savanna at that time. So how did chimpanzees handle this extraordinary evolutionary change, this enormous amount of pressure that was put upon them um, by virtue of the disappearing rainforest? Well, we can't know with certainty, of course, but what we can do is look to chimpanzees who live in a very similar environment today. And the best example we have is in the Fongoli Reserve in Senegal. And there what we see, there's a group of chimpanzees that uh, often live in the savanna. They often retreat back into the forest. We're not quite sure why they do that. But what we can see is that their behaviors actually shifted a little bit from forest-dwelling chimpanzees. Um, so what do chimpanzees do when they're out in the savanna? Well, the first thing that they tend to do is skulk around the margins. They stay close to the trees. They don't take big risks by crossing large amounts of ground because if a large cat comes after them or even large dogs like hyenas, they need to be able to scatter um, for the trees. The second thing they do is they travel in larger groups than they usually do in the forest. Now that makes good sense because they need more eyes to look out for predators. What's also interesting is, and this precedes humanity by a little way, is they share much better when they're savanna, on the savanna than, than um, forest-dwelling chimps do. So when forest-dwelling chimps have something that another chimp wants, they tend to nudge them and bug them until they share it, but it's not a willing process. And these chimpanzees seem to be more oriented toward sharing. They also use caves as shelter, which is certainly very interesting, something our, our ancestors probably did. And perhaps most interesting of all, uh, they, they're the only chimps that we know of that will chew a stick into a spear and then use, use it like a spear. So what you can see on your screen here is uh, an adult male chimpanzee in um, slides A, B, C, and D. He's using, he's in the forest right now, but this is a savanna dwelling chimp and he's chewed the very tip of his spear, which you can see in the bottom of picture C, and he's pushing it into the hollow of a tree where there's a small monkey called a bush baby. And he's trying to skewer the monkey and, and pull it out um, as a hunting exercise, so to speak, which he was successfully able to do. Uh, and there's an adolescent chimp who's watching him who's kind of learning how to do that. So the, the interesting behaviors that we see on the part of chimpanzees that do live in the savanna suggest that they can adapt to it, they can survive, although they don't do it very much. And 
it also suggests some movements, some very interesting movements toward what humans might be like. Now, by and large, though, as these opportunities to get back in the forest would have become less and less common, they would have been forced more and more out under the savanna. They would have had to eventually live all the time out there. And this probably was an enormously difficult thing for them that led to the demise of most all of them, I would imagine. But some of them did survive, like, oops, like I said, uh, probably by skulking on the um, savanna, sticking around the edges of it. But by 3 million years later, so this is now about 3 million years ago, we see for the first time um, an animal that might be able to protect itself. This is um, Australopithecus afarensis. Um, this particular specimen is also known as Lucy, uh, because when this uh, skeletal remains were discovered, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was a big hit. And the, um, that was one of the songs they had with them. They were playing over and over out um, in Africa while they were digging up this particular skeleton. And so um, we know a lot about uh, Australopithecus from that original find, but we know a lot about um, this particular species from a lot of other finds as well. Um, Ray Dart found them down in um, South Africa earlier on. That was in fact the first sign that we had of this missing link between chimpanzees and humans. And, um, and we found many, many more of them since then. So she may not look very different from a chimpanzee. I, she, it's a male or a female, but Lucy gets me calling her her. She may not look terribly different from a chimpanzee, but there was a super important difference that already existed um, in her anatomy by virtue of her lifestyle on the savanna over the last three million years. And that difference can be oops, seen in this next slide here, where they, um, out of completely good fortune, it turns out that 3.6 million years ago in Tanzania, um, a group of uh, Australopithecines were walking across an ash field that had come out of, I suppose, a nearby volcano that was cool but hadn't completely dried. And their footprints are preserved. It's, the, it's um, in Laetolia. I'm not totally sure how to pronounce that, but it's near the Olduvai Gorge where the Leakeys did a lot of their early archaeological work. And um, Leakey's daughter, Mary Leakey, happened to um, be in the area and she saw these footprints and realized immediately their importance. So we've dated them to 3.6 million years ago. So we know that it's Australopithecines who was making those footprints. And what you see here is sort of a heat map that represents the pressure that um, some scientists have done when they've recreated this ash and had people walk through it. So in the top image there on the left-hand side where you're looking at the footprints, you can see the footprint from above and from the side. And the top version is a, a, a person walking barefoot as a person normally strides with a straight leg and the um, upright hip that we have. The, the next image down is a person, but walking like a chimpanzee does. Now, if you look at that image in your lower right, you can see the chimpanzees have a bent knee. They can't straighten their knee all the way. And they also have a bent hip. They can't straighten their hips all the way because those are um, evolved tendencies that we gained after we became bipedal or we were starting to walk, walk upright. And then finally, you can see the Laetoli prints at the bottom. Now, mind you, they're much older and a little rougher. But if you look at them, as particularly if you look at the cross section, you can see quite clearly that the pressure pattern is similar to the way a chimpanzee, I'm sorry, to the way a, a human being walks, not the chimpanzee walk where there's an enormous pressure on the toe from this bent hip, a bent knee walking, but rather a more even pressure from the foot and then across the toe as the person continues on. And so the data that we get from these footprints are also consistent with the data that we get from her anatomy, which shows us that her knee could go um, completely locked and straight and that her hips had elongated like ours had, 
and also um, could um, was completely straight. So in other words, we can see quite clearly here that um, Lucy herself, osteopathicines were bipedal. They walked upright just like we do. Now that turns out to be terribly important. And if you're interested in Q&A, I'm happy to talk about why she might've become bipedal over this 3 million year period. But for our purposes right now, what really matters is simply that she is bipedal. So what are the consequences of that bipedality of her walking upright like that? Well, the, the primary consequences shift in the shape and orientation of her body. So if we look at um, this next slide, here you can see her chest musculature. Um, on the right-hand side, that's actually human musculature, but osteopathicines, from what we can tell, have almost moved entirely to that. And on the left-hand side, you can see the musculature of a chimpanzee. And the first thing that you'll notice is that the chimp muscles aim primarily vertically. So that makes perfect sense because, of course, a chimpanzee is going to spend its time um, primarily um, climbing up trees. And so it needs the uh, musculature to aim um, up and down so that it can use its power accordingly. Whereas because we live on the ground, and so, of course, did osteopithecines, our musculature is shifted side to side. Now, that turns out to be important because it enables something that chimps can't really do, and that is it enables Lucy to be an expert thrower. Now, we may think of throwing, if you walk, watch people at the beach, as sort of an activity of your arms and maybe some degree your shoulder. But in fact, if you watch expert throwers like gridiron players or cricket players or um, hunter-gatherers, you see the throwing looks much more like what you see on the bottom of your screen here. And what happens there, you can see the first, the first thing that happens is the person steps forward with the opposite leg, and then their hips start to rotate, and then their shoulders start to rotate, their elbow comes through, and at the very end, their arm comes through, and then their wrist comes through as well. And the reason that's important is because it turns out that human throwing generates its power via the elastic energy that's produced by our, the stretching of our tendons, ligaments, and muscles all the way across from one side of the body to the other. That elastic energy is what enables that snap at the end that allows us to throw so hard. Now, chimpanzees are way stronger than we are pound for pound, but they don't throw very well. And when they do throw, they tend to use two hands and throw overhead because their, their hips won't rotate and their chest won't rotate like ours will because they're all tied up and they're aimed going upward. Lucy, in contrast, if we look at the bones in her hand and her arms, and if we look at her the length of her waist and the way her muscles would have been connected, she would be able to throw like we do. Now, the reason throwing is so important is that it's, it literally represents the creation of the single most important invention in military history, and that is the capacity to kill at a distance. Basically, no other animal can do this. Some can kill at very, very brief distances, but no other animal can do it like we can. Now, why is killing at a distance the most important military invention in history? Because it allows a larger force of weaker individuals to successfully attack and defeat a, a smaller force of stronger individuals. So in Lucy's terms, imagine what would have happened if uh, 50 Australopithecines were going across the savannah, and imagine they're even armed with a rock, um, and they come across a lion. Well, I suspect that 50 Australopithecines, they, by the way, they're about the size of a human 10-year-old. Uh, so they weigh about 85 pounds or you know, about 40 kilos. Um, and they're, you know, a little over a meter and a half. So um, I suspect that if you had 50 of them and they're armed with stones, they could probably attack and kill a lion. But of course, every one of them would be arguing about who has to go first, because you know full well, if you're running at a lion with, this, with a rock or a stick, 
the first, the second, the third, the fourth, probably the sixth, sixth and seventh are all going to end up in the mouth of that lion. They're going to end up dead. And maybe once his mouth is full of all your friends, you'd have a decent chance of beating him to death with a rock or a stick, but it's not going to be easy and no one's going to want to go first. In sharp contrast, if you can all throw stones at the lion, you can dispatch it from a safe distance because long before it ever gets to you, you are doing harm to it. And so the the other side of that coin, of course, is that maybe six or 10 Australopithecines could get in there and hit a lion at once with a rock, but literally a hundred of them could throw rocks at it at the same time if they're at a distance because it allows the um, missiles to converge from different angles. So the, the notion here is that what would have happened once Lucy became bipedal is for the first time in any species on this planet, this animal has the capacity to kill at a distance and that would have changed everything. Now, you might ask, well, all right, what evidence is there really that an animal that size could possibly throw hard enough, even through this elastic energy process, to do any harm to a lion? Um, I happened to conduct, unintentionally conduct, a really good experiment that demonstrated um, that very possibility to me about 25 years ago. So I'll briefly tell you about um, this little anecdote. It's not really an experiment. Um, in this particular case, I was, at, uh, I was teaching at Ohio State University in the United States at the time, and I had gone to the Ohio State Fair which is um, just a big country fair that they held every year. And I was at the time dating a woman who would eventually become my wife. And so she and I were wandering around the fair and we came upon one of these nets where you could throw a baseball and there would be a radar gun that would time how fast it went. Now, I had never uh, thrown a baseball in, in, with a radar gun before, so I had no idea how fast I could throw it, but I thought, I'm pretty good at that. And this will duly impress her with my machismo and uh, she'll fall in love with me and, and she'll be mine forever. So I said, hey, um, why don't we try this out? Let me throw the balls in that net. And she said, sure. And so I go in there and I pick up the first baseball and I throw it uh, basically as hard as I can. And it goes about 55 miles an hour. So I'm pretty chuffed because that seems pretty fast to me. I know that the top fastball pitchers in the majors throw it over 90 miles an hour, but that's never been my aspiration. So then I throw another one. It's also about 55 miles an hour. And she seems duly impressed, so all's going really well, until this 10-year-old pre-adolescent kid shows up and sets up shop next to me. Now, he's literally like a human twig. There's not a pound of muscle on this kid's body, probably weighs 85 pounds. He's shorter than I am. He's completely scrawny. He has not gone through puberty yet. And he picks up the first ball in his, in his little basket, and he throws it 65 miles an hour. And then he throws the next one 65 miles an hour. And I'm like, this is not a good situation. I am not impressing my wife if this, you know, torpy little twig next to me can throw the ball uh, quite a bit faster than I can. So I picked up the last ball I had. I threw it as hard as I possibly could. All I did was sort of really hurt my shoulder. It flew off at a bad angle and it maybe went 56 miles an hour. It did not improve my situation at all. So I was pretty dejected. I walked out of the, walked out of the nets and my wife was like, well, look, throwing is not about muscle. It's really about technique. And that, that kid probably plays baseball all the time. Now, first of all, that was when I knew I loved her and wanted to marry her. But second of all, she was right. It's about learning how to do it properly and generating that elastic energy from the far end of one side to the far end of the other side of your body. It's not about muscle. And that experience taught me, well, certainly, an osteopithecines is about the side of that kid. If it spent its time throwing, it could probably do some real damage. So then the question becomes, was well, there any evidence in the historical record anywhere that human beings have used throwing to their advantage, that we can see evidence that humans have done this. Well, it turns out that Barbara Isaac, who was this wonderful anthropologist quite some time ago, was very interested in this, the throwing hypothesis, 
And she searched around through the historical records to see if she could find evidence that in fact, uh, human beings um, actually can very effectively use throwing to their advantage, could do real harm with it. And what Barbara Isaac found um, is a couple of examples, quite a few, but I'm gonna show a couple of them to you. Um, the first is uh, this picture here. This is Jean de Betancourt. And uh, this, he's the leader of this invasion of the Canary Islands in 1402. And so what you're looking at here on, that's his image on the left. And then you're on the right-hand side, that's obviously no cameras. So that's a painting of him and his uh, expedition as they went out from, I assume, Portugal uh, to the Canary Islands in order to subjugate them and try to make it a colony. And you can see from the um, drawing that uh, he wears armor, they were wearing armor, and they had what were regarded as the top flight uh, military weapons that were available to Europeans at the time. Remember, this is 1402. And so how does de court describe his experience of encountering the Canary Islands? Well, it turns out that they're one of quite a few groups around the world who the primary weapon that they use when they come into conflict with each other is stones, not bows and arrows, not spears, but stones. So it's a perfect example to see what kind of damage human beings could do by simply throwing stones. Now, don't forget, these Europeans are armored up and they have proper modern weapons and everything, but here's what happened. Here's what Tibetan uh, court writes. In hardly any time at all, they had so badly beaten us that they had driven us back into shelter with heads bloodied, arms and legs broken by blows from stones because they know of no other weaponry and believe me that they throw and wield a stone considerably more skillfully than a Christian, which is kind of an amusing control group. But anyway, it seems like the bolt of a crossbow when they throw it. All right, well, first of all, that's super impressive. But second of all, you could say, well, that's 400 years ago. Their weaponry was so poor that it was barely better than throwing stones. So here's a, an example from my current adopted country. Well, the one I plan to stay in, but the country that's adopted me as well. And that's from Australia. And this is now um, 468 years later. So here's what John Wood writes. Many a time before the character of the natives was known, has an armed soldier been killed by a totally unarmed Australian. The man has fired at the native who, by dodging about, has prevented the enemy from taking correct aim and then has been simply cut to pieces by a shower of stones, picked up and hurled with a force and precision that must be seen to be believed. The Australian will hurl one after another with such rapidity that they seem to be poured from some machine. And as he throws them, he leaps from side to side so as to make the missiles converge from different directions upon the unfortunate object of his aim. So here again, we see this super impressive evidence that human beings, when they spend their lives practicing throwing stones, can do so with enormous force and enormous accuracy and can become quite a deadly weapon. But of course, if we rewind in time, it still leaves open a really important question. And that is, what would be the effect of one Australopithecus throwing rocks at an oncoming leopard or lion or even hyena? And I suspect that unless it's a smallish hyena or leopard, um, even one Australopithecine throwing stones is gonna achieve very little and certainly nothing at all against a lion. This, um, this ancestor of ours would undoubtedly end up in the belly of a rather annoyed, slightly bruised animal rather than driving it away if it had to throw these stones by itself. So for an, for an ancestor who's that size um, and who didn't quite have the anatomy in place to do this as effectively as we humans can do it today, this assuredly would have required collective action. That is, all the Australopithecines in the group are gonna have to throw stones rather than, and work together, rather than do their own thing, run away, whatever. Now, 
this may not seem like that big of a deal as a human being, but it would have been a really big deal for our ancestors because chimpanzees simply aren't capable of doing this. They don't work together well at all. Whenever they have a task to do, they prefer to do it alone rather than to work in groups, although there are instances where they will work in groups, but when they do so, they do so very ineffectively. Again, I'm more than happy to answer questions about that if you guys are interested, but for now, just sort of take my word for it that the data show that when chimpanzees work together, some do the job, some don't, some slack off halfway through, et cetera, and this would have required something very different. And so cognitively, that would have changed everything in our ancestral history. Previously, we've got basically an, an ancestor who looks out for him or herself first and foremost, and the group is just something to stay with because it's safer, there's some friends in it, that sort of thing. But once this happened, all the Australopithecines would have benefited if they took the same approach. Once they gained the capacity to kill at a distance, they would have all benefited if when a predator or a threat, any sort of threat came along, they all oriented toward it and threw stones. Because previously they would have scattered for the trees and one of them would have surely died. But now if they could stand their ground and throw stones, none of them will die. So it's literally in every single one of their best interests to start working together and to start engaging in this kind of collective action. Now, of course, we have no idea how long it took before some of them happened to have that proclivity and some of them happened to do that and then it happened to work and they became the most successful ones who passed on that proclivity. But eventually, somewhere in this process, that must have happened. And when that did, that changed everything for our ancestors. It not only changed everything psychologically, but it also changed everything about this enormous piece of hardware that we have on the top of our neck. Because now, suddenly, we have a, we have a real benefit that we could gain by becoming a lot smarter. So if you ask yourself, um, you know, what would a zebra gain if it were super duper smart? Well, almost nothing. You know, imagine all zebras are super duper smart. They could talk about the meaning of life and Einsteinian theories to each other, but they still got hooves, so they're not making any neat machinery. They're still eating grass, so they're not getting any more um, calories. And so that enormous brain would cost them a lot of calories, but there'd be no way that they could pay the rent on that big brain. And so there's no reason for them to have a big brain. In contrast, once we started working together, now our groups could start having emergent properties that single individuals don't have anymore. A group that could plan, a group that could have division of labor. Now these are the kinds of things that would give us a lot of benefit out of being smarter. And that benefit would actually start paying the rent on this big piece of equipment that we have that comes with all those metabolic costs. Now we tend to think of evolution in terms of bodies in terms of our brain getting bigger, in terms of our legs changing, et cetera, as we become bipedal. But of course, our attitudes also have to evolve. And so our chimp ancestors, chimp-like ancestors, and our chimp cousins today are not good at working together because they don't have an attitude that is designed for cooperation. They don't have that proclivity in place. But somewhere along the line, Australopithecines would have developed that and that would have changed everything. So, Moving forward from them, let's see here, if I go like so. We know that um, those cognitive capacities were too much, they were beyond the reach of Australopithecines. They couldn't, they had no division of labor, they couldn't plan for the future. And I can, again, talk about some, in fact, I'll talk about some of that evidence right now. But by the time we get to Homo erectus, this is the next ancestor in the pike. Um, well, a couple down the pike, but now we're looking at 2 million years ago up to um, less than a million years ago. The, um, once we get to Homo erectus, now we're at a point where they could 
we, we see good evidence for division of labor and we see good evidence for planning for the future. In particular, an animal or an ancestor who can envision unfelt needs. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's look at um, chimpanzees or, or monkeys or any other animal um, aside from us on this planet today. To, our, to the best of our knowledge, none of them are capable of envisioning a future that is different from the present that they're in now. In other words, for which they have needs, a future in which they have needs that they don't have now. Now, a chimpanzee can envision a future where it's hungry if it's currently hungry. And so if it wants to go, for example, to a termite mound, it'll break a stick off a branch and it'll walk over to the termite, it'll pull the leaves off, walk over to the termite mound, dip the stick in, and then eat the termites off it. So clearly, it can envision a future five minutes from now in which it's going to be hungry and want to eat termites, and it can then go about doing the necessary intervening steps in order to be able to fish for termites. But what the chimp can't do when it's full is ever imagine that it's going to want to eat termites again. And so it'll throw that stick away as if there's literally no utility to it. And you might say, well, it's easier to make a new stick, because usually it probably is. But we know this from controlled studies in the laboratory, and we even know it from studies in which uh, the investigators would, for example, they've done this frequently with monkeys, not so often with chimps, but the data are the same, even though chimps are much smarter than monkeys. They'll give them all the food they want, but they'll only do it, for example, once a day. Now, monkeys and chimpanzees are used to um, sort of provisioning themselves continuously, constantly looking for food. And so although they could survive eating one meal a day, just like we could survive by making that a big meal, they don't like it. And so the question is, well, what happens if you feed a chimpanzee or a monkey one meal a day repeatedly over and over again? Well, they never learn that they should store their food. They'll literally start throwing the food at each other rather than storing it under their pillow or hiding it somewhere for a midnight snack later on. And of course, it wouldn't take a person more than two or three days on this diet to say, oops, the only meal I'm getting is at 6 a.m. I'm going to set food aside so that I can have an afternoon snack and a dinner and et cetera. So we know that um, chimpanzees can't do this. They can't envision a future with unfelt needs. And all the data suggests that australopithecines couldn't either. Now, what you have in this image here are two stone tools. The um, stone tool, the lower one on your left, is an Oldowan tool. That tool goes back um, two point, at least 2.7 million years, although some have argued that there's a very similar version of it that's 3.3 million years old. So it goes back to australopithecines and certainly to Homo habilis. And what's interesting about that tool, there's a lot of things that are interesting. First of all, it's not a very fancy tool. My guess is that if you were walking along and found it, you could literally pick it up, skip it across a river, and never have any idea that you were holding this object of incredible historical significance. But setting that aside, we also know that this tool has never been found at any great distance from where it was quarried and made. In other words, there's no evidence that whoever made that tool ever carried it around to use it more than once. In sharp contrast, if you look at the tool on the right, that's called an Acheulean tool. And those things, that tool is about uh, 1.7 million years old. Um, it's invented by Homo erectus. And instantly when you look at it, you can tell that it's a proper tool. It's um, uh, bifacial. It, it has the appearance of a tool. It's, we call that a hand axe um, just because it's, there's, there's no such thing as a hand axe anymore, but it was used for butchering meat and stuff like that. And it fits very nicely in your hand. If you found that tool, you would probably recognize almost immediately that um, somebody had made that for a purpose. It wasn't just lying around like that all of a sudden. So the, um, the key thing to that tool is now for the first time, we find them at great distance from where they were quarried and made. We find them where they no longer match the local bedrock, which quite clearly suggests that whoever made that tool 
thought to himself or herself, boy, I'm going to want to use this again. I'm bringing this with me. In other words, planning for a world of unfelt needs. Now, it so happens that if we put, um, if we teach people to make these two tools, the Oldowan tools and the Acheulean tools, so they become expert stone nappers because, of course, they have to use one stone to bang into another. And then we put them into an fMRI magnet, which allows us to see blood flow in the brain and see where people are, what part of the brain is being used while people are thinking through the process. When they do that, and they show an incomplete Oldowan tool to these stone nappers who are lying in this fMRI magnet and say, what would you do next? What we see light up is primarily the motor cortex and premotor strip of the brain, the sort of areas back here that are involved with what you'd actually physically do in order to make it. In contrast, when we put them in the magnet and have them say, show them an incomplete Acheulean tool and say, what would you do next? All the front of the brain lights up the planning areas, the areas where people are switching between options, going back and forth and figuring out what they do. And so obviously what that suggests is that Homo erectus was a lot smarter than, the, than its ancestors who had invented these Oldowan tools because they could use their abilities to plan to make such a complex tool. Now, I said we also have evidence that Homo erectus had division of labor, which again, we don't see in any ancestor before them. And of course, it's no surprise that we don't see division of labor where we don't see planning because it'd be very, it'd be very difficult to set up an organized division of labor if you couldn't plan. Nonetheless, um, home erectors could plan. And as we, as I'll show you next, there's also pretty good evidence that they had division of labor. Um, oops, wrong button. Uh, this is probably the best site. This is work by um, Kerry Shipton, who I can't remember if he's at Oxford or Cambridge, but one of those two. And uh, the work that he's done here is at Isampur in India, which is a 1.2 million year old um, Acheulean tool site. Now, What's interesting about this site is that the tools themselves, um, the Acheulean tool is manufactured in spatially discrete clusters. So if you look at um, the first piece, that, that's called a flake, that, that piece that's bashed off a large rock that's in that person's hand. Now that flake will then be worked on to be turned into a tool. If what, what they see at the site in India is that there's one spot where the flakes are knocked loose in the rock from the underlying large pieces of stone. And then there's another spot several meters over where there's original shaping is being done. And then there's another spot several meters over from that where all the fine work is being done and you can see the bits and bobs lying around. Now, if one single individual were making these um, Acheulean tools, why would they move around the site in a systematic fashion? Knock a piece loose, walk a few meters away, work on it, walk a few meters away and work on it again. No, they wouldn't. They would just knock a piece loose, sit down and work on it. But if there's division of labor, if the big guy in the group is knocking the pieces loose to begin with and then handing them off to somebody else, that person is going to walk a few meters over to get out of the way while they do their job. And then if they're handing it off maybe to somebody who's really good at getting the fine, sharp edges on it, then that person, again, is going to walk a few meters away to do their job. And so we see pretty good evidence they're dividing the task up. We also see evidence that 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 stone in the bottom right of your picture, that's called a hammer stone. And those have been brought in from several kilometers away because these basalt stones are particularly good at bashing the rock to knock a piece loose. And then there's little pieces of quartzite that, are, that were at the final um, part of the site where the people are doing the final bit of polishing and, and not polishing, but sharpening because quartzite is quite good for that as well. And again, that was brought in from a great distance away. So all of that suggests a group of Homo erectus who are working together and are planning and are dividing labor in a, in, a manu, in, a, in a manner that makes the group greater than the sum of its parts, that gives the group emergent properties. So again, pretty good evidence. And of course, 
some of the best evidence for division of labor is the evidence that we see when they're out hunting. And so we see evidence that across Italy, uh, well, across Europe in general, um, we see evidence for them hunting uh, elephants, which were way larger than today's elephants, and um, fast animals like horses, which would be very difficult for a lone Homo erectus to take down. But for lots of them working together and planning, it would have been an achievable goal. And in fact, one of the more interesting pieces of evidence is there's a 700,000-year-old site um, uh, in the Middle East where there's a mammoth that they've killed, an elephant, and they've managed to turn the um, skull of it over in order to go through the um, what was the spinal column into the brain casing, into the skull, in order to extract the brains, which were very high in fat and therefore very high in calories and would have been very desirable um, for our ancestors. So if you've ever tried to pick up a mammoth skull, you'll realize that it weighs way too much for any one individual to handle it. It would require a lot of individuals handling it, and they would have had to work together. If you gave a whole bunch of chimpanzees who wanted to turn over a skull, a big mammoth skull to work on, they probably would never achieve it because they'd all be pushing in random directions. But our Homo erectus ancestors could obviously work together and turn this enormous item over. At any rate, let's move on. So where does that take us? Well, let's look at this evolutionary pathway that we have so far that goes from here to now. And what we see in the upper corner there is a chimpanzee, um, which to the best of our knowledge looks pretty much just like um, our ancestral, common ancestor with chimps from six, seven million years ago. And that animal has a 380 gram brain. You then fast forward three million years to get to Australopithecines and all you've gained is 70 grams of brain, 450 gram brain now in an average Australopithecus, Australopithecus afarensis. So three million years of evolution gains you just a tiny bit of extra brain. Now you go another million years forward and now you're two million years ago and we've got Homo erectus with a 950, 960 gram brain. So that's more than double the brain size of an Australopithecus, although they're a larger um, organism as well. So it's not commensurately quite as, it's not really twice the size of the brain because they have to control a larger body. But nonetheless, an enormous brain expansion in that um, million to a million and a half years between Australopithecus and Homo erectus. And then when you go from Homo erectus to Homo sapiens, now you've got a 1,350 gram brain. And so now what we're talking about is literally adding an entire chimp brain on the top of Homo erectus and um, as a consequence, getting to Homo sapiens to where we are today. And well, why did that happen? Well, what I've argued already, of course, is that because our groups allow us to become more effective, if we can start developing better cognitive abilities, they allow us to hunt more effectively, to protect ourselves more effectively. They thereby allow us to pay the rent on that large brain. This 1,350 gram brain that we now have literally uses up 20% of our metabolic energy at all time. That's a huge price to pay. Now, it's no big deal when the food is in the nearest pantry, but it's a very big deal um, if you have to go out, kill whatever you want to eat, and then drag it home. And so what allowed that to happen? What allowed that brain expansion that went from um, that went quite slowly from chimpanzee to Australopithecus and then really took off with Australopithecus to us. Now, of course, we, we can't know exactly. Um, Australopithecines and even Homo erectus are too old for us to extract any DNA. But what we can do is rely on some molecular clocks, and I'm happy to discuss that if you're interested, to try to rewind the story and see what might have been going on. And when we do that, what we see is that at around the time, well, about 12 million years ago, 
the, a gene first appeared in our um, gene pool. Um, well, it, already, it was already there. It's called the NOTCH2NL gene. But what it did is it duplicated itself and it turned itself off. Now, evolution often works that way where there's an accidental duplication because now you can mess around with the new gene without destroying the function of the old gene. And so NOTCH2NL is this gene that split off, that duplicated itself, and then it sat there turned off on the genome for 12 million years. Well, actually for about 9 million years, because it was around 3 million years ago where the data suggests that that gene now duplicated itself again and then turned itself on. And what did it do when it did that? Well, this gene is responsible for maintaining neurons as stem cells for longer, which in other words, causes your neurons to duplicate and duplicate themselves to grow a larger brain before they become specialized and become neurons and can't do that anymore. So why would it be that this gene turned itself on at exactly the right time, just when we could use it, when we're australopithecines, and we now have some benefit by being in a group? Well, the answer is obviously that that's not what happened. It probably turned itself on numerous times in the intervening 9 million years. The problem was that every time it turned itself on in the past, it was probably more of a cost to our ancestors than it was a benefit. And so some chimpanzee who suddenly had this notch to an L gene turned on and maintaining their brain and stem cells for longer and growing a bigger brain is way smarter than all the other chimps, but what good is it doing him? They don't work together well as a group. He can't forage better as a consequence. And so he has to pay the price on a bigger brain, but he's not a more effective predator as a consequence. So once we get to osteopithecines though, when, when now when it accidentally gets turned on and in fact duplicates itself and gets turned on again, now when that happens, so there's a big benefit by, the, by this animal getting smarter. It can start to plan. It can start having division of labor. It can start negotiating its place in the group. It can do all sorts of things that allow it to hunt more effectively, that allow it to protect itself more effectively, et cetera. So what we, it's just suggestive evidence. These papers are only a little over a year, almost two years old now. So we don't know with any certainty. We need a lot more work on it. But what it's certainly suggestive of is this opportunity that came along to get smarter. And that opportunity probably kept emerging and over, over and over again but kept being a cost or at very best a neutral until it finally became a benefit when we started to work together in groups and we started to um, cooperate in this sort of manner. So uh, cooperation not only made us smarter, it also changed um, our psychology. Like I said, um, giving all sorts of opportunities for us, but it even changed our physiology in some interesting ways. So this is one of my favorite examples, this next slide. And what you can see here is, um, oopsie, sorry about that. Um, sorry. Uh, what you can see here in this next slide is the, um, these are our three great ape cousins. We have an orangutan, a gorilla, and a chimpanzee. Now, all three of them are super clever, and they all have the capacity to differentiate, to detect what another animal could see from its vantage point. So if, if a chimpanzee is looking at another chimpanzee across the way, it can tell what that other chimpanzee would be able to see from where it's sitting. Nonetheless, all three of these great apes who can do that disguise that information. Notice that their eyes are entirely brown. So in other words, if something attracts their attention, it's very hard for other members of their group to tell where they're looking. And if you look at humans in sharp contrast, it's super easy to tell where we're looking because we evolved this white sclera to our eyes, this outer layer um, beyond the cornea. And so that white sclera advertises the direction of our gaze. Here you can see in this bottom right picture that when, it doesn't even matter what direction her face is pointed. Her, when she's looking at you in those top two pictures, you can very easily tell that. And when she's looking off to the right in those bottom two pictures, independent of where her face is looking, 
you can very easily tell that as well. So what that suggests is that somewhere along the way between chimpanzees and us, and I suspect it was at Australopithecus, although of course we don't know, we evolved this white sclera to our eyes in order to advertise the direction of our gaze to our fellow group members. And we would never advertise that if it weren't also the case that our fellow group members tended to be on our side, tended to cooperate with us rather than compete with us. So when we look at the eyes of a chimpanzee, we know that they're fundamentally competitive with one another. And of course, we know that from watching them in the wild and in the laboratory as well. And I'm happy to talk about any of those kinds of experiments that people want during Q&A. But in contrast, when we look at the eyes of a human, what it tells us is that if I saw something, if I see something out of the over going on over there, whether it's an opportunity for like some prey that I want to eat or, or, or something good, or whether it's a threat, something bad, I literally want other members of my group to know, because if it's something good, that suggests the probabilities are going to help me get it. And if it's something bad, that suggests the probabilities are going to help me deal with it. Whereas chimpanzees try to hide that information because it's just the opposite. Other members, if, if they if they see something good, other members are going to go take it from him. And so the fact that our eyes are white like that suggests that we're fundamentally cooperative with each other and we've actually changed our body in order to advertise what we're thinking so that others can see the same thing that we see. So what does all this mean? Well, what it means is that the story I've been telling you so far is that our move to the savannah, which was forced upon us by the um, creation of the Great African Rift Valley, aligned individual goals and group goals for the first time in our line. And by our line, I mean our evolutionary line back through primates. Lots of other animals um, show a, a perfect alignment between group goals and um, individual goals, bees and ants, lots of animals do that. But in our line, that hadn't happened. The the, um, the great apes are fundamentally competitive and the individual's goal tends not to align with the group goal as a consequence. But by forcing us out into the savannah, forcing us to protect yourself, developing the capacity to kill at a distance, suddenly all of us benefited by cooperating with one another. And as a consequence, oops, that doesn't work. As a consequence, what we got is the evolution of cooperation and kindness. And so if we look at how we treat each other, we treat each other much, much more kindly than chimpanzees do. We're way more cooperative and we're way kinder to each other. But, and this is super important to keep in mind, evolution made us cooperative and kind. Those things evolved to make us more effective killers, not because kindness and cooperation are fundamentally good things by themselves. It's important to remember that evolution itself is entirely amoral. It, all it cares about is what works. And so it's not going to make us kind and cooperative because it makes our lives more fun. It's going to make us kind and cooperative because we can become more effective at doing our job. And what our job was then was killing other animals and bringing them home and eating them. And so when we look at human nature, we often marvel at the fact that the, the same person who could be so kind and loving and wonderful can also be so mean, horrible, genocidal, and sadistic. But in fact, we evolved to be kind, loving, and wonderful so we could be more effective at being genocidal, violent, and sadistic. And so it's no surprise that those two things are really the opposite sides of the same coin. So um, we've now been on for about 45 minutes. And so what I'd like to do is take a five minute break here and then we'll pick it up and we'll move, we'll, we'll move much more farther forward into time. We'll start talking about agriculture and then we'll talk about the way that we are today. What are the implications of all this for the creation of culture? Remember the, this talk is about the evolution of culture and for what we call cultural scaffolding, the, the fact that culture is not stagnant, but rather can grow and move forward. Well, first and foremost, the, um, this evolution of our brain 
created a mind that was that had the capacity for something as complex as human culture to reside in that mind. There's so much information in our culture that you have to have an enormous brain to even consider the kind of complex things that we do. Um, people who work with chimpanzees talk about chimpanzee culture, but they're talking about a couple of little, you know, a, a very thin slice of very simple behaviors, nothing like the complex stuff that we that we tend to do. So this, this cognitive evolution that we went through created what we call the cognitive niche, which is a place on this planet for an animal that relies on brain over brawn, that has you know, no claws, very weak muscles, but nonetheless, this enormous biological weapon in the brain that allows us to survive and thrive anywhere. And the key way that that brain does that is via culture. Culture is our most important weapon. Now, how does culture work and how does cultural scaffolding work? Well, there's really lots of components. You know, you have to have a big brain to fit all that information. But how do we make culture move forward? How do we make it improve on itself? And it turns out that there's really two key processes at work here. The first is storytelling. Now, the basis of all cultural improvement has always been storytelling. That's the basis of cultures becoming more complex and more effective. Now, how does that work? Why is storytelling the basis of cultural improvement? Well, if you think about what other animals have compared to us, once we develop this enormously complex communicative ability that exists in language, now we can represent things that aren't in front of us anymore. And so for the first time in any animal on this planet, human beings have the capacity to learn from somebody else's experience without being a direct witness of that experience. So I can come home from being on a hunt and I nearly was killed by a lion and I'm all chewed up and badly wounded, but I could tell you guys how I survived it. And now you guys could use that information without paying the huge price that I paid. And now you would know what to do if you ever found yourself in similar circumstances. And so storytelling is enormously important. Now, this is, uh, this is a picture here of um, Polly Wiesner and what she works with the um, Kung, um, I can't quite say the name right, but the, the, in the Kalahari. And what you see here is a um, gathering on the fire and, and what she did is after working with them for almost her entire career, she went back and looked at all of her field notes and, and asked herself, what did they discuss for, during the day versus what did they discuss when they're sitting around the fire at night? And what she found is that sometimes people still tell stories during the day, but mostly what happens during the day is conversations about the current economic and social issues of the time. Whereas when night falls, people tend to gather in larger groups around the fire and they start to tell stories. And those stories... Um, tell you about how to live and how to survive. They tell you about the cultural rules there. They tell you the big picture things that you need to know in order to be an effective member of that group. And so what they allow you to do is they pass on ancestral knowledge and they incorporate that ancestral knowledge with any new thing that any member of their group has learned that's of any great importance. So in sharp contrast to every other animal, when basically when it's born, it it can start learning what's what's new and what's important for it to know. And then when it dies, that knowledge disappears with it. With human beings, we learn, we gather what's important, and then we literally pass that all on to the next generation. And so this cultural scaffolding enables our cultures to get wiser and to know more and to become more effective. The, as a consequence of that, you know, literally school children today know what only the geniuses knew just a few hundred years ago. You know, Copernicus discovering that the earth is not the center of the universe, Darwin discovering evolution. These ideas now are taught in primary school. And that process, although a slower version of that, has been going on as long as there have been humans. In fact, probably before Homo sapiens, probably back to Homo erectus. We don't know, 
but we do know that the control of fire is at least a million years old. And we also know that once you could control fire, now at nighttime, you could get together safe from predators, but in a situation where it's comfortable, but it's a little bit too dark to do the work of the day. And that probably is where storytelling started to evolve because there was little else that you could do. And so we started to take advantage of that. Now it's, as I say, it's super important because it allows our um, culture to move forward. But um, it's not the only feature that, that plays an important role in this cultural learning process. There's lots of them, but the other main one that I want to focus on is this idea of imitation. Now, um, what you see here, this is an example of imitation from a very famous experiment that um, Horner and Whiten conducted, <coughs> I guess it's about 15 years ago now, maybe a little bit more. And then, <clears throat> And what they did in this experiment is they have this, you can see this sort of kind of complicated box and that's a treasure box in the sense that there's something tasty to eat inside it. And they showed either a chimpanzee or a child. And in this photograph, you see a chimpanzee, a human child or a chimpanzee. They showed how to open the box. And the way they showed it is they took that stick that you see in the chimp's hand and they poked it through a little hole in the top and then they poked it through a hole in the front. And when the box is opaque, like this one is here, the chimpanzee can't tell which actions are important, and so it'll poke it in both places. But when you give the chimpanzee the exact same box, but now it's translucent, then the chimpanzee can see that if you poke the stick in the hole in the top, literally nothing's happening. It's poking into that sort of empty open space at the top. Whereas when you poke it in the front, it actually unlat unlatches the device and the chimp can get access to the treasure on the inside. And now what happens is, when the chimp couldn't tell, it did both actions, but now that it can tell, oh, there's no waste, no need to waste time poking in the top, it doesn't. It emulates rather than imitates. It goes after the key effective action that actually achieved the goal. Now, what's so interesting about humans is that they don't do that. It doesn't matter in the case of small children whether the box is opaque or transparent, and they still do the action in the transparent case that's clearly pointless. They clearly achieves nothing. They poke the stick in the top before they poke in the front. Now, why would a human do this? Well, first people argued, well, maybe it has to do with you humans go to formal schools and we're supposed to copy. And so um, my colleague, Mark Nielsen here at UQ, went up into the Northern Territory in Australia. And here he went out to the Kalahari and he chose children who had no formal education whatsoever and who came from families with no formal education whatsoever. And he did the same experiment with them. And this is his version of, a, of that same treasure box where they're doing this pointless rubbing of the stick along the top that does nothing before they poke it in the way that allows it to open. And it doesn't matter where you are. You could be here in Brisbane, you could be in London, you could be in the Kalahari, you could be way up in the Northern Territories. Children are the same the world over. They, it's called over imitation. They imitate an action that's clearly pointless. Now, why would anybody do that? Why would a, you know, chimps are smart enough not to do that. Why are humans not smart enough not to do that? Well, it turns out that doing that is super important. And of course, if you ask, ooh, something's happening there. Um, my computer bounced around. Sorry about that. Um, if you ask yourself, um, why, why would it be the case that a, um, a human being would copy actions that clearly have no point? What you end up getting to is this idea that humans also have what we call theory of mind, that I understand as one human that another human has information in their head that's not the same as mine. And so if I'm trying to teach somebody, I imagine what they don't know and how I could transfer what I do know. And if I'm trying to learn something, I imagine that they know things that I don't know and that I need to try to figure those things out. So if my teacher does something that clearly seems pointless to me, I say to myself, well, they know better than I do. 
I should probably do that action because it probably pays some kind of purpose. Now, that over-imitation, I suspect, plays an enormous role in human culture. And I've got a couple of examples that I'd like to show you about how that process works. So what we see here in the upper left-hand corner of your screen, that's a sago palm in the lowlands of Papua New Guinea. Now, it turns out that a sago palm is actually edible, the tree itself. It doesn't look edible, but it has a high rate of starch in the trunk of the tree. And that high starch rate in the trunk of the tree is a lot of good food if you could just find a way to get it out of it. Well, how do people, how can they get that starch out of the tree? It's this multi-step process. In the first step, which you can see in the top middle picture, they chop the tree down, they peel the bark off it, and then they use a tool like an adze to basically pound the, the trunk itself into sawdust. They now take that sawdust and they put it into these big troughs, which you see there on the um, right hand, upper right-hand side of your screen, and they run the warm water that they have in Papua New Guinea through it repeatedly over and over again, which causes the starch molecules to start to separate from the sawdust. Because if you try to eat at this point, you're literally eating sawdust. You're trying to digest cellulose, and unless you're a termite, it's not going to be possible. Um, but if you could separate the starch, now you've got some good food on your hands. And so they run the water through it, and then eventually they run it. What happens by running enough water through it is the starch molecules separate from the wood, and now they pass that water through a cloth. And by passing it through the cloth, the, start, the dissolved starch molecules will pass through it, but the bits of wood won't. They then put that cloth, uh, put that, that soupy water into a, um, a big um, container, often a canoe, like you see in the lower right there, and they let it just settle overnight. So overnight, all that starch, it's really just in a colloidal suspension. It's not fully dissolved, so it settles out. And then the, um, they take it out the next day and they lay it out in the sun because if, if it's allowed to sit in that wet form for too long, it'll ferment and become toxic. But if it's laid out in the sun and dry, they can make it into things like those pancakes that you see there that are quite nutritious and good to eat. Now, if you had to guess, like, first of all, it took a lot of trial and error for somebody to even think you could eat that palm tree and then find a way to do it. My guess is that hardly any individuals know every step in the process and why you do it. In fact, none of them may know it by the time it's all done. They may simply know, well, I do this because people did that before me. You know, why do I have to hurry to dry it out? I don't know. That's just what we do. So the beauty is that when you get this complex process whereby you can, you've learned to extract food from something that hardly looks edible, you don't actually need to understand the process that was probably arrived at over a great period of time through trial and error. All you need to do is be able to over-imitate and copy that with great fidelity. And that's what human beings have evolved to do. Now, there's lots of examples of how important that is. Um, my, my favorite example is this um, story here, the Burke and Wills expedition. I mean, this is actually um, an example from Joe Henrik, who talks about this in his wonderful book, The Secrets of Our Success. And um, and he talks about lots of these kinds of expeditions. And what the, the basic story is the same. I choose this one because it's here in Australia. So basically what happened is that um, in, the, in the winter of 1860, this expedition left uh, Melbourne. And you can see them there in that bottom painting that's gathered up with all their equipment. And what they're trying to do is get all the way to the top of Australia and come all the way back down. Uh, that's the Gulf of Carpentaria. That was their goal. And so they, they march north and about about halfway there, you can see, if you can see it on your screen, there's this little um, area called Cooper's Creek, and they set up a depot camp there, and Burke and Wills and two other men just continued on the second half of the journey all the way up to the top. Now, unfortunately for them, they never quite made it to the Gulf of Carpentaria. They ran into swampland that they couldn't get through, but nonetheless, they could tell they were very close, and so they turned around, but their um, return was delayed by monsoons and all sorts of other problems that they had, and so 
by the time they got back down to Cooper's Creek in, in one of these awful cases of, of ships in the night, it turns out that the, the people who were there with all the supplies waiting for the return obviously assumed they were dead because they were taking so long and had finally given up just a few hours before they arrived. Um, weak and exhausted, they get to camp and the embers are still warm as the, the team that had been waiting for them had left and they weren't capable of catching up with them. They just didn't have the energy anymore. So they died somewhere around the end of June um, of 1861. Now, what, what does this have to do with overimitation? Well, where they died, literally any random 12-year-old who already lived there could have told them how to get by and how to make a living because there's lots of things that are perfectly good to eat in that area if you simply know how to prepare them. So if they had had the wherewithal to ask any of the Aboriginal groups that lived in that area, you know, how do you eat? Please show us how to do things. Their descendants would still live in that area today. But instead, because they didn't have that cultural knowledge, they perished. And this story's been enacted many times over. We're very well-prepared European explorers with lots of great equipment went out and died where the local people would find plenty to eat and would see no reason why a person would starve to death or freeze to death. So this is the value of, of culture and of cultural learning and of over-imitation and um, storytelling in that process. Now what I'd like to do is um, stop and talk about one other key part of our history. It's not really an evolutionary part, rather it's a cultural part of our history because of course culture can change in the ways we've just been discussing, just like genes can change, but if, but if culture has an enormous advantage, it can change much more quickly. Now, the so the first part is about how our bodies, brains, and minds have evolved over the last six million years. This last little section before we um, uh, go into the last part of today's talk is really more about how our psychology has changed. And probably that has very little to do with um, any underlying evolutionary change. It probably is mostly culture. But I show you this graph here um, on, the, uh, on the upper right of your screen because what that shows us is the pace of evolution. We're looking at, at the speed with which um, different alleles, different um, genes uh, have swept through a population. And what we can see is that in the last 80,000 years, the fastest, the greatest sweep of evolution has been in this last 10,000 years, which is since the onset of agriculture. Now there's a host of reasons for that, which I'm happy to discuss in Q&A, but for now, what it does show us is there's been some evolutionary change um, in the last 10,000 years, but really it's trivial to the magnitude of the cultural change that agriculture brought about. So what did agriculture do? Um, well, Remember that if you think about agriculture, there's two things that you need in place in order to be a successful agriculturalist that, of course, we'd had for over a million years. We need division of labor and we need planning for the future because that's the only way to be effective as an agriculturalist. But Homo erectus could do that, and they never developed agriculture, to the best of our knowledge, and human beings didn't develop it until actually 12,000 years ago in the Middle East and then very soon thereafter in China, I mean, in the Americas, and, and then all over, although not everywhere. Um, did we, did we show signs of agriculture until, you know, the current world that we live in? Now, these two paintings that I'm showing you, the one on the top is 3,500 years old. It's agriculture in Egypt, which had been very well established by then. And the one on the bottom is 450 years old, agriculture in Europe, also very well established by then. So just a little example of what people, the kinds of things that people were doing when they were doing agriculture. Now, the thing about farming is that it required massive changes in our lifestyle and massive changes in our psychology that underlie that lifestyle. So remember, you need planning and division of labor. That's easy. We already had that. But you also need new tools and new lifestyles. 
So what you see in the upper right of this image is a, um, the, a domicile of a hunter-gatherer. That's a Hadza's house. And literally all it is is an animal skin over some um, branches that provides a little bit of shelter from the rain because it's warm there. They don't need much in the way of a home. And they, they're nomadic. They want to be able to roll that skin up and move along and rebuild it somewhere new. So they don't travel with lots of heavy things. In the lower right, you see more Hadza implements. These are gourds and baskets. Again, very light, easy to wrap up, put in a backpack, and carry along with them. In contrast, this mortar and pestle that you see in the bottom right of your image, is that's 14,000 years old. So that actually predates agriculture. And in other places, we've seen um, agricultural wheels that predate agriculture by 20,000 years, that are like 30,000 years old. So we know that well before the onset of agriculture, our ancestors were processing cereals because, of course, it requires a great deal of effort to grind up cereals and make them digestible to humans. But if you look at those, that mortar and pestle, it's a far cry from the light gourds and the light baskets of the Hadza people who are nomadic. Whoever made those things obviously didn't intend to travel with them because that's one small part of what you need and it would just weigh too much. And so what happened is that human beings became increasingly sedentary. They stopped traveling and they started relying more and more intensively on agriculture. But even though they had been doing that for a good 20,000 years prior to the onset of agriculture, they didn't start planting things themselves and start to grow their own food. And then the question becomes why? Now, of course, we don't know with certainty, but a probable answer to that question is that our psychology wasn't very well adapted to an agricultural lifestyle. Our psychology was all about being a hunter-gatherer. And, and why are they different? Why is that important? Well, hunter-gatherers they share everything, um, not so much what they dig up, but everything that they shoot and or, or kill in any way and bring home. And so there's universal sharing in hunter-gatherer communities, which makes good sense because it kind of provides an insurance policy. And there's also universal sharing of all the implements, the things that they own. Now, that's a sensible strategy for a group that's nomadic and that tends to live in small groups because if, if there's somebody who's really stingy and doesn't share well with you and they're always taking your stuff but never give in return, when you guys break camp, you go one way and they go, you just go the opposite direction from them. And so you can be rid of people that you don't like. And we know that the Hadza, for example, do that. They, they try to be with people who will share with them and cooperate with them. But once you start farming, well, you put some effort into the ground you live in, you, you're not going to go anywhere. You're not going to leave it behind. And if your neighbor's kind of a schmuck and, and doesn't share with you very nicely, well, then you can't really be sharing with him anymore. And so the kind of universal sharing rules don't go very well with agriculture. They don't go with the differences that of, of a nomadic lifestyle versus a sedentary lifestyle. And we see this in lots of ways. Um, for example, when the Kung hunter-gatherers um, work with the Bantu people, um, you know, this large language group who also live near them in Africa, we, we often see that all sorts of problems develop because the Bantu are, are horticulturalists and they'll sometimes hire the Kung to help them with uh, crops or something like that. And they often pay them in livestock. But when the Kung go home with their chickens or with their cattle, the friends immediately want to kill it and eat it. Now, they've worked hard for this thing. They don't necessarily want to share it with their friends and family, and they probably want to try to get milk from the cattle and eggs from the chickens, but then that requires you to say no if somebody says they want to kill it and eat it. And to say no when somebody asks to share with you as a hunter-gatherer is the worst possible thing you can do. It's a sign that you're stingy and no one's going to like you. And so it creates this enormous conflict between a group that's fundamentally hunter-gatherer group and a group that's fundamentally horticultural. It says the people start to shift from hunter-gathering, hunting and gathering to, to horticulture. They end up with these conflicts with the people who are still the hunter-gatherers in their group. And so it, that kind of conflict probably took a long time to resolve. 
maybe thousands of years before society could fully shift from this universal sharing um, into a society of um, private property. Now, once you get to private property, you have to, of course, start to accept this idea of inequality. There is no inequality to speak of among hunter-gatherers, but of course, there's enormous inequality among agriculturalists. We can see that in the fossil record and in these archeological digs, not really fossil records, too recent, but we can see it in these archeological digs um, in a variety of different ways. So we know, for example, that the deliberate burials of, hum of Homo sapiens go back at least 100,000 years, some possibly hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions, but we've got clear evidence of 100,000 years ago that the person was clearly deliberately buried. And this burial on the left that you're looking at, that's the first one that we have where they put flowers around um, the person when they buried them. Now, probably they did it many other times, but the flowers don't survive, or we can't find evidence that they're still there in the ground much older than 13,000 years ago. Um, but there's there's no other sign in that grave on the left other than that people were clearly cared for and loved if somebody put flowers in their grave, but that's all we can know about them. In contrast, the grave on the right, they decorated them with, with um, beads and jewelry. And so now for the first time, we see signs of inequality in, a, in the graves themselves, where some people were just basically put in the ground as they were, and some people were put in the ground with trinkets and other things that suggested that they had more material goods in their life. So, you know, E.O. Wilson, very famous, the biologist who works on insects, very famously said that communism is a great idea, but it's just the wrong species. That's what bees and ants do. But another way of thinking about it is communism is actually what hunter-gatherers do, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need is basically how hunter-gatherers live. But once you shift to agriculture and farming, you just can't do that anymore. And that requires this big psychological shift in how we run our lives. The, um, so if we, um, if we go forward again, this is that same um, image I showed you from before, but now I'm showing you the full painting. And you can see here that there's this Egyptian overlord who's watching this aristocrat of sorts, who's watching the work, but not doing any of it himself. And so what happens then is that you've gone from universal sharing to accepting of inequality. And of course, once you've got farms, some people are gonna work harder and be more successful than others. Maybe they choose better farm grounds or better things to grow. And they're going to become wealthy while others stay poorer. And eventually, you're going to start to have a wealthy landed class and a poorer class. Now, once you've accepted inequality, it's not a big leap then to say, well, we could expect inequality to be transferred on to their children. And, you know, maybe the children will end up not being as good as the parents, but they've certainly got a big head start. And eventually, what you get to is the idea that inequality is actually inherited in the blood. And that's what aristocracy became, that you're literally of a higher quality individual because you're the offspring of somebody who was an aristocrat than if you're the offspring of somebody who wasn't. Um, this idea is took over the world once we had agriculture everywhere where we have this hierarchy. And in fact, you can even see it in hunter-gatherers who can store food. You see that same kind of hierarchy. And I would argue that that fascination still exists today. You know, we all know exactly what Harry and Meghan are up to, um, even though you know, the idea of royalty in today's world who have no actual authority and can do no things and are just there because we let them is absurd and anachronistic, but nonetheless, it speaks to the fascination that we have and the acceptance that we have of inequality. Now you can, um, it also turns out that once people accept inequality, they're a whole lot easier to subjugate than before they do. And we see this in lots of examples, but one of my favorite is out of this wonderful book, The Wealth and Poverty of Nations from um, Asimoglu and Robinson, I'm sorry, uh, not the Wealth and Poverty of Nations. Um, I'm blanking on the title. But anyway, Asimoglu and Robinson's book, 
Um, and what they showed in that book is that when you look at the, conquist the Spanish conquistadors going through South America, when they encountered hunter-gatherers, they often failed to subjugate them because they simply were not used to inequality and they would literally die before they'd allowed themselves to be enslaved. Whereas when they then encountered agricultural people who were used to inequality, they could easily enslave them because basically they were already being enslaved by their local aristocratic system. And so who did they really care who they were serf farmers for, the conquistadors or the, um, or the um, you know, aristocracy that they already had worked for? So private property emerged out of agriculture, so did slavery, so did serfdom, and unfortunately, so did a lot greater gender inequality. And again, I'm happy in Q&A to talk about um, how gender inequality came about um, as well and, how, and what role that played. But um, before I do, I wanna also talk about how agriculture led to all sorts of new opportunities, but it also led to new costs. And so um, what you can see here is um, on the lower left, what you have is the, um, that's the jawbone of a Neanderthal. And that person never brushed his or her teeth in, in their entire life. And that person never flossed once in their entire life, but has literally this lovely set of teeth. In contrast, on the lower right, what you see, that's the jaw of a, a middle of a farmer, a European farmer from the Middle Ages. And it's just utterly disgusting. And in fact, that big pile of goo on the left of the jawbone is, is literally uh, bacteria and gunk that's grown solid and could have and, and was probably used by that individual as a chewing surface. So how did agriculture do that? Well, we evolved in a world where we ate lots of um, different foods, but not very sweet foods. Our sugars were rare and um, we, we mostly encountered them in the context of berries and things like that. We didn't encounter them in the context of cereals because we couldn't eat those. The unfortunate shift of reliance on heavy cereal diets shifted the bacteria in our mouth so that the ones that are the most dangerous to us unfortunately became ascendant. And so we went for a world where, from a world where literally there's no need to ever brush your teeth in your entire life to a world, a world where if you did not brush your teeth, you had the unfortunate um, uh, teeth of that poor middle-aged farmer who had just obviously suffered mightily and would have had terrible halitosis. Similarly, if you look at, at this uh, person on the upper left, he's a Hadza, a hunter-gatherer, and I promise you, he spends his entire life eating every little bit of sugar, fat, and salt that he can get his hands on. That's what he's constantly looking for, but he's stunningly fit. If you look at the person on the right, I promise you that guy's trying to avoid sugar, fat, and salt, but nonetheless, he's obviously overweight. And the problem is that we evolved in a world where sugar, fat, and salt were really rare. And so it was in our best interest to crave them and to eat them whenever the opportunity emerged. Now we live in a world where sugar, fat, and salt are everywhere. And so even we still crave them because that was so beneficial to our ancestors. But now it's, we have to stop ourselves from eating them all the time because we have this risk of becoming obese when that was literally never a concern from our ancestors. You know, they don't have good mechanisms for, guy, for telling them that they've eaten too much because eating too much wasn't a problem. They've got really good mechanisms for telling them they're hungry because starving was a problem. And so we've shifted from pursuing that stuff and it benefiting us when we pursue it to trying really hard to avoid it and it actually being quite difficult to do so. Okay, let me finally finish this section up of the talk with cities because cities are literally kind of the icing on the agricultural cake. Once you've got agricultural communities, they develop where the land is really good and then people start to gather in villages and towns and eventually they started to gather in cities. And the first city on this planet is probably this one here, Uruk in Eastern Iraq. What you see in the top image there is what's left of it. 
Um, that's the ziggurat, which is the big um, temple in the center. Um, it, you, at the time it was built, it sat on the Euphrates River. Obviously, nobody would build a city right there. The Euphrates has now moved west, and so that sits about 30 miles to the east of it. And so um, it's in the desert now, which nobody would build a city there anymore. But, but nonetheless, at the time, it was a thriving city. It had about um, 10,000 people eventually by about 5,000 years ago. And um, it occupied an area of about six square kilometers. They, they had money, they had taxes, they had goods that they traded all over the Middle East. And so once you get to cities, for the first time, human existence can become strongly positive sum. Now, it's already slightly positive sum, by which I mean that one person cooperating with another benefits them both, both but it be can become much more positive sum when now people can specialize and somebody can decide that they want to be a barista because they know that even if all they know how to do is make coffee, somebody else is going to be able to shoe their horse, somebody else is going to feed them, somebody else is going to do everything else. If you live in a really small community, you need to be good at everything. You have to be a generalist. But once you live in a city, you can focus and be utterly useless at everything else. Like, for example, I am, other than doing your very specific task, um, which then gets you fed and all the other things that you need. So in many ways, cities were the final achievement of agriculture. They're what made life so unbelievably pleasant on this planet for us. And of course they came with costs like everything else. Previously, we were not good at dealing with strangers and now we have to become better at dealing with them. And of course that comes with lots of conflict and all sorts of things that also make life challenging, but of course make it wonderful as well. So what I'd like to do now is with all that sort of past behind us, I'd like to spend um, the remaining 20 or so minutes um, talking about uh, the implications for understanding our lives today. Now, of course, there are lots of implications of this evolutionary history for understanding how we live today. They can tell us a lot about leadership, about innovation, about sociality, about lo lots of things. Um, and, but what I'm gonna do for the remainder of today's talk is just focus on their implications for happiness because that's something that I think that we all can get our heads around and, and resonate with. So what I'm gonna do is talk about uh, what makes us happy. Um, and I'll try to, there's, there's five things that I'll go through that this evolutionary story helps clarify what makes us happy. And if I have time, I'll talk about four, four things that disrupt our happiness. But um, the key for understanding this part of the talk is keeping in mind the idea that happiness is a, an emotion that evolution gave us in order to motivate us to do what's in our genes best interest in order to motivate us to do um, that which is necessary to enhance our reproductive success. And so when we, when we engage in those evolutionary imperatives, when we do those things that enhance our genetic fitness, our inclusive fitness, evolution gives us happiness and we feel good about ourselves. When we do things to disrupt them, we feel bad about ourselves. And so happiness is an, is a, an emotion that evolution gave us. And from that perspective, we can understand what's gonna make us happy and what's not going to make us happy. So let's talk about um, first what makes us happy. And again, if time, I'll talk about um, what doesn't. So um, the first point that I'd like to make is that our groups matter. Remember, we evolved to live in groups and we evolved to cooperate with other humans. And, and you can reflect on that super easily. I mean, imagine that you were dropped alone by yourself, naked in the forest, somewhere in Africa or South America, deep in the rainforest. Well, if you're like me, you'd probably be dead in a few, in a 24 hours at most something, somebody's going to eat you. But imagine that there were 50 or hundred of you dropped also naked in the rainforest in South America or Africa. Well, first of all, it'd be something of a party, but second, setting that aside, 
you could easily imagine people who quickly organize themselves and start figuring the situation out. And literally, rather than feeding the residents of the local forest, you'd literally be introducing a new top predator, even if the people you drop there are no better at getting by in the forest than I am, because collectively our minds are really fabulous. And so what that means is that our groups matter to us. Now, there's lots of great evidence for that fact, but my favorite evidence um, comes from this work by uh, Shige Oishi. And um, what Oishi did in this study here is he looks at how many times you moved when you were a kid, and then he, he separately scores you by whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. And so if, if you look at this graph, what you see on the left is um, these are people who moved zero times. And then as you work your way across the x-axis, they're people who moved once when they were a child, two times, three, all the way up to more than 11 times. So like probably kids whose parents were in large corporations or the army or something like that. And what he does now, so these are people who move anywhere between zero and 11 times when they're children, but now he's looking at them between the ages of 60 and 70 and saying, what's their probability of dying during that decade between the ages of 60 and 70? And what you can see here is that if you're an extrovert, in other words, those dotted um, lines, the circles that run across the bottom, it doesn't matter how many times you moved, your chance of dying in that decade of your 60s to 70s is a little bit better, greater than 0.10. In contrast, if you're, um, well, actually, this is a regression equation, but we'll call it 0.10. In, in contrast, if you look at the um, sloped line, now what you're looking at is introverts. Now, why does it matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert? Well, extroverts like to join new communities. They find it exciting to meet new people. And introverts prefer small groups of people, and they prefer to be with close groups of friends that they've known for a long time. For them, it's very difficult to move into a new community and establish new friendships. So what this really introversion and extroversion represent here is proxies for somebody who can easily establish and join a new community and somebody who can't. And what we can see here quite clearly is that the somebodies who can't, these introverts who it's, who it's hard for them to join new communities, every single time they move when they're a child, they're building up physiological stress and damage in their system that literally increases their probability of mortality in that decade um, between when they're 60 and 70 years old. So again, what this is showing us is that being embedded in a community really matters. If it's, if it's easier for you to be embedded in new communities, if you're extroverted and you love to doing that, that's great. And you can spend your whole life moving around. But if it's hard for you to embed yourself in communities, if you're quite introverted, or at least you don't really enjoy meeting lots of new people, it's super important that you keep close touch with the people who are part of the community that you're already in. And you should ideally not be spending your life moving around all the time. Okay, that's the first point I would make. That makes us happy. Second, well, being embedded in your community is super important for ancestors, but it's not enough. They couldn't say, well, I'm going to be safe and happy and everything's going to be okay if I'm part of my group. The group also has to be effective. And to be effective as a group, it's super important for group members to be psychologically, mentally on the same page. So the second thing that I would turn to is this tendency that we have as humans and that to the best of our knowledge, no other animal has is to try to establish mental connections with each other. Human beings fundamentally like to be on the same page. They like to, I like to know what you're thinking and you like to know what I'm thinking if we're friends, if we're colleagues. And we're constantly sharing the contents of our mind. We're constantly trying to let people know what we're thinking and we're constantly trying to find out what they're thinking. Now, this would have been really advantageous to our ancestors because once they're all on the same page, then they recognize that's a threat. We'll all treat it the same way. That's an opportunity. We'll all treat that the same way. But of course, if they're not on the same page, then they can't act effectively as a group. So it's important for every individual, but remember group goals and individual goals align really well with humans. 
So it's also super important um, for people each individually to do this. Now, um, small children do this process. This is the photograph that I've got here for you. They're constantly trying to share attention with their caregivers by pointing out objects. Um, I remember when my son was little and he started doing this for the first time, he would point and he would say, you know, cup. And I thought, oh, he wants a cup. And I'd walk over and get it for him. And he didn't want it. He pointed something else. Oh, you know, table. So we'd walk over there. And I quickly realized he's not, he doesn't want those things. He just wants me to look at them at the same time that he's looking at them. In other words, he wants to share attention with me because that joint attention is the first part of the process of being mentally on the same page. Now, I remember when I was a little kid um, watching Winnie the Pooh in the movie theaters, the Walt Disney version of it. And Tigger, who's bouncing along and is really a lot of fun, is bragging that he's the only one. And I was so envious of Tigger. I so desperately wanted to be the only one. And what I didn't realize is that I didn't understand my own psychology. And I had my nose rubbed in that fact um, as an adult when I was teaching on this boat. I went on this program that's full of professors and students, and we're going around the world on this boat. And we're out in the middle of the Indian Ocean one night, and the captain says, I'm going to turn off all the running lights so you can go look at the stars if you want for the next few hours. So I was like, oh, this is great. So I went up to look at the stars, and I happened to go at a time when there's pretty much nobody around. And so I'm wandering around on top of the boat, top of this huge ship, looking at the stars, and it's stunning. I mean, there's the whole Milky Way right there. It's one of the prettiest things I've ever seen. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, this shooting star comes zinging along. It's one of the brightest things I've ever seen in my life. It literally looked almost like it was going to hit the water in front of us, and then it exploded and fizzled out in midair. It was this amazing shooting star. And my first reaction on seeing that was turning around looking for somebody to share that experience with. All I wanted to do was see some other stranger on the top of the boat and say, oh my gosh, did you see that? And I have them go, yeah, I saw that. Because somehow it would feel more real to me if I could share that experience with somebody else. It turns out I was the only one up there. And so in one way, you'd, if this Tigger idea, I thought it'd be more magical if I'm the only human who ever got to see that event. But it wasn't more magical at all. It was way less magical because I couldn't share it with others. And that's what we've evolved to do. We've evolved to share our experiences and then try to share the emotions that go with that experience. Because it's important that not only do we see it the same way, that we think about it the same way, but that we feel about it the same way as well. And that process of feeling about it the same way, again, makes us much more effective as groups. But again, it can lead to a lot of frustration. If I come home and I tell my wife how mean my boss was and how she snubbed me, and my wife laughs and says, oh, she meant nothing by it, that's upsetting to me because it was, you know, here I've had this upsetting experience and then my wife thinks it's funny or thinks it's meaningless rather than thinking it's terrible and, and important. And so how do I ensure that that doesn't happen? Well, that's the source of all human exaggeration. I want to be sure that my wife shares my emotional experience. And so I'm going to, when I catch that fish, it becomes a bigger fish in the telling because that makes sure that she reacts to it the way I reacted to it when I experienced it. And we often think of people who exaggerate when they tell stories and they embellish as basically they're liars. And we look down on that. But in fact, it's, it's actually not driven by a desire to lie. It's driven by a desire to share emotions with each other. And so this exaggeration, well, it's a cost because now we're learning all sorts of things that aren't quite true, but it's a cost that comes about by virtue of the incredible importance for our ancestors of sharing these emotional experiences. So we seek emotional consensus and when we can't find it, we feel bad. But of course, when we can find it, we feel good. It creates a sense of shared reality. And that, that feeling of shared thoughts and emotions is super important for making us happy. Now, the next thing I would say is that meeting our survival needs is really important. And that's what these first two are about. 
but we also have to meet our reproduction needs. And the way we do that as humans is that we mate with each other. We form these long-term mating bonds, or at least medium-term mating bonds, long enough to be together, serial monogamy, to raise a child, etc. And in so doing, the key is that you want somebody to choose you. Now, what's going to make somebody choose me? It's, it's not that I'm the best human being on the planet. All I have to do is the best human being in my particular group of human beings, the best available guy. If, if every guy in my group is a worthless schmuck and I'm a slightly less worthless schmuck, all the women are going to be interested in me because I'm all the best that they've got available. And so we become very interested in what everybody else is up to. We become very nosy. We, become, we want to be a little bit better or at least as good as everybody else. And unfortunately, this is really costly for our happiness, but it can, it has positive sides to it as well, of course. So here we look at um, money, which is in, in modern human parlance, one of the very important ways that we establish these kinds of um, comparisons with each other. Now, in this graph, what you can see, they've asked people how important, this work, by the way, is by uh, Norbert Schwartz and Danny Kahneman, and they ask people how important is money to you, and then they see how much money they have, and they track their happiness. And sure enough, you can see quite clearly here, particularly as people go from poverty to middle class, but even as they go from middle class to pretty darn well to do, they get a little bit happier. And the effect is stronger for people for whom money is really important, but the effect is there for everybody. So what that suggests is that money actually does make you happier. But here's where it gets more complicated. What we have here are data from the United States. And in fact, the data look exactly the same from the EU, but I'm just going to show you this one graph. I'm showing us what's called the Easterlin paradox. And what you can see here is the blue lines are life satisfaction or happiness measured since 1947 in the United States. And the yellow lines are GDP or actual in purchasing power parity. So these are like $1980. And so it's actual increase in wealth. What you can see is as America got way richer from 1947 to 2002, it didn't get any happier at all. So literally there, that's four times as wealthy. That's controlling for inflation. And so if you look back in, in 1947, you know, Americans were, if you look at the, the political ads, a chicken in every pot. You know, Americans aren't, they're not happy now if they have a chicken because most Americans have a chicken whenever they want it. Um, no Americans in 1947 had a TV of any sort. Now almost all Americans have, except the very poorest, have like a really lovely big flat screen TV that looks wonderful. And so they've gotten way richer than they used to be. And the same thing holds with um, all of Europe but, and, the, and the same data in Europe as well, but they've gotten no happier. So how could that be? How could it be that happy people are, are, I mean, rich people are happier than poor people, but getting richer, when everybody gets richer, it doesn't make anyone happier. And what the answer seems to be is that really it's not having wealth itself that makes you happy. It's having more wealth than the people around you. In other words, I want to be a little bit better off than everybody else because then someone will choose me as a partner. And so if we all get wealthy together, it has literally no effect because then I'm not rising up compared to my pool around me. Um, and what that tells us is that the crap that we own is actually a very little use of utility um, because it's... It really isn't, it's the stuff that we own doesn't make us happy. It's just owning more stuff than everybody else does. Now, this effect itself is very fundamental. Um, I'm running short on time, so I won't show you the video, but this is a lovely experiment here by Franz Duall and Sarah Brosnan. And what they do in this study is they, um, well, I will, I'll, I'll show you the video. It's so much fun, I can't resist. Um, what they do is they train these um, monkeys, these capuchin monkeys to, um, they give them a pedal, a pebble, and they train them to, re 
to return that pebble for a slice of cucumber. Now, capuchin monkeys far prefer grapes over cucumbers, but they've learned to do the task for cucumbers. So obviously they find cucumbers a perfectly acceptable reward. Um, what I'm gonna do is um, play, this is from Franz de Waal's TED Talk, if I can get this to work right. I'll play you the video of the actual experiment itself. So what's going on in that clip? Well, what we can see here is that what the monkey, it was perfectly content to, to do that test for a cucumber, but when the other monkey gets a grape, it's no longer satisfied to do it with a, for a cucumber anymore. Everything is relative. It can't let that other monkey get more than it does, or that other monkey is going to rise higher in the hierarchy, hierarchy than it does. And so we get this social comparison process going all, on all the time. So how can we avoid that as human beings? What can we do to make ourselves happy anyway? And um, here the answer, I think the best answer is provided by um, this wonderful work by Leif Van Boven and Tom Gilovich. And what they argue is that you should buy things to do rather than to have. And so what you can see in this graph here is people were asked about experiential purchases, which are things that they bought to do, and material purchases, things that they bought to own. And when people are quite poor, that's annual income on the bottom of the graph. So people on the far left of the graph were quite poor. Neither of them makes much difference because, of course, they're buying the things they have to buy. But as you start to get wealthier, notice that those two lines split apart and people have, get much more enjoyment about, out of the things that they bought to do than the things that they bought to have. Now, I've, I found this really unintuitive when I learned it, really counterintuitive because it always seemed to me that spending money on experiences was so wasteful and, and so it just seemed like you know, the experience is so ephemeral, it happens so fast, how could I spend all that money having an experience when I could have saved it and used it for something I'll keep for a long time? So I remember when I was in graduate school and literally the only couch that I owned, I'd rescued off the side of a road and it was disgusting. And I was saving my money to buy a new couch. And one of my friends called me and said, hey, we're gonna go to Aspen for spring break. Do you wanna come skiing with us? And that was all the money I'd saved. And I thought, oh, I really want that couch, but boy, I really wanna go to Aspen. So I, I I splurged, I went to Aspen with my friends, and I remember feeling really guilty about it. Even on the way to the airport, I was thinking, gee, I really should have spent that money on a couch. But I promise you, if I'd bought another couch with that money, I would have soon got rid of it. I wouldn't have given it any thought. There's no way my wife would have let me keep the thing once we got together. But that trip to Aspen, even though it was 30 years ago, it still means something to me. It still makes me happy when I think back on it. And so we can avoid this trap of worrying about what everybody else has if we can focus on the experiences that we have in life rather than on um, the things that we own. So I would say buy things to do rather than buy things to own. Now, as I said before, the next thing focuses on the fact that more than any other animal, human beings have learned, um, have to learn how to survive in their environment. And so the next thing I would tell you, I've already discussed the background work and that is storytelling. We love to listen to stories. We love to tell stories. If you think about it, movies, books, TV, all those things, comedians, preachers, all those things are stories. We've evolved to love to listen to them because it's so valuable to us as human beings to learn about other people's experiences. And we've also evolved to love to tell them because, of course, if you're a, value, if you're a good storyteller, you're a value to your community, even when you may not be such a good hunter anymore and that sort of thing. And so um, storytelling is an enormously important part of human experience and a large part of conversation is storytelling as well. I'm not gonna have time to go into what makes us unhappy, but I will tell you about the final thing that makes us happy, and that is relationships. Um, particularly long-term, all relationships are important, but particularly long-term sexual relationships that are the underlying ability that we have to raise children. 
And these data here are from this longitudinal study in Germany. And what you can see here is the um, uh, people who we, they got married on that year zero. And we can then rewind the tape and see, well, how happy were they were, were they four or five years in advance of getting married when they didn't even know the person yet, because we've been following them for years. And then how happy were they after the marriage? And you can see a couple of things that are really interesting here. First, people who, event, who stay together, who don't get divorced, actually are happier the entire time than people who get divorced. Happy to talk about that in Q&A, but for now, let's skip over that and notice the other effect, which is that if you stay together, even four years later, you're still about as happy as you were before you even met the person. Whereas when you divorce, when you dissolve that relationship, you're literally quite a bit less happy by four years later than you were um, before you got married. And by the way, notice that the year of marriage, your happiness is already going down. So if you're standing at the altar and you're kind of bumming out, you should run. At any rate, we can break that group who stays together into subgroups. And this is work by Richard Lucas at Michigan State. And what he does is he says, well, look, people stay together for a variety of reasons. They may not always be happy with each other. And so when he pulls apart that top group, the group of the circle around, he gets this graph that you have on the right. And sure enough, some of those by 10 years later, they're very unhappy. They stayed together maybe for the kids, maybe for monetary reasons, but they're way less happy than they used to be, right? They're used to be as above zero. And then the average person, they've slowly drifted down over 10 years to about where they used to be. But look at this group that um, is in the top third there. They've literally gotten happier and happier. And 10 years later, they're still happier than they were the day they got married. So good long-term relationships are literally um, one of the most important things that can actually make us happy in life. Um, because of course, they're the basis of all the um, success that our ancestors had in life, um, raising children, because children, be, children are so incredibly difficult to raise. I'm sorry to be skipping over all this, um, what disrupts happiness, I'd be happy to come back to it. But for now, what I'm gonna do is um, turn to what all this means. Um, and then I'll take questions. So the first thing I would say is, I, I don't know. You know, evolution doesn't even mean anything. It's just, it is, this is how we are. But nonetheless, I think I don't know is a pretty lousy answer. And so I'd like to provide um, three thoughts about what I think it all means. First, um, it's disconcerting how large of a role chance plays in our life and in our very existence. You know, we as a species got really lucky to exist at all. And we as individuals got really lucky to exist at all. And if my parents had decided to go to a movie the night that they instead got amorous and conceived me, I'm not existent, right? And all of that holds for all of us. And, and even if the one sperm, you know, there's 200 million sperm inside my mom, if one of them won the race and wasn't the one that's, that was me, now it's my half brother or something like, you know, it's, it's my brother or sister giving this talk instead of me. So it's, it's enormous role for chance. And the probability that any one of us ever exists is nearly zero, although the probability that people like us exist is obviously quite high. But there's also a disconcertingly large role for violence in all this. You know, evolution is an amoral force. It goes with whatever works. And so a lot of what enabled us to be successful in the, in the past is being violent to each other and to other species. But I guess I would end on this point. <clears throat> and that is that despite all that, it's pretty extraordinary that we evolved to be mostly kind to each other and that we didn't evolve, go down like the evolutionary pathway of seagulls. I would hate to be a seagull and spend my life fighting with other seagulls over potato chips. Rather, we get to be human beings. Um, we, and human beings evolve to be cooperative with each other. We evolve to be kind to each other. And we use this enormous tool that evolution gave us to create these enormously satisfying lives. 
We use that tool to create culture, and then we use culture to scaffold it up in order to create these incredibly safe and comfortable and effective worlds we live in. We're only a couple generations away from the entire history of the world where every organism that was born on this planet buried almost half of its children. As late as 1900, 40% of all children who were born um, didn't survive. And certainly that was the case with hunter-gatherers. And so up to 40%, I mean, it could be as low as 25, but it was never better than that. And so we know we've, we've used these tools that evolution have given us this cooperation, this kindness in order to create these incredibly satisfying worlds. Now, unfortunately, we also evolved to constantly look for something more. But what I would argue is that that something more is the world that we're actually living in today, if we have the good luck to live in um, the world's established democracies. At any rate, thank you very much for your attention. I'm happy to take questions now. Okay, so the first one is from Meg. And she's asked, the scaling up of societies following the advent of agriculture put, put huge pressure on cooperation. For example, limits on reciprocity, monitor, monitoring reputation in large groups. So which cultural inventions do you think might have had the biggest impact on facilitating large-scale cooperation? Yeah, that's a great question. And we know that society had to crack that particular nut. And... One of the ways that we cracked that problem is that it turns out that so long as you develop some basic societal rules about automatic politeness. So hunter-gatherers, when they meet each other, if they don't know each other, it's really fraught with danger. But when two people in a New York City or London or anything meet each other, there's no danger at all. And that took a long time before we developed these automatic rules of politeness that we just tend to be automatically polite to each other. Now, it turns out that so long as you follow these automatic rules of politeness, and so long as you therefore, and then you, you don't allow yourself to be um, overly generous to people you don't know, but you tend to be modestly generous to people you don't know. So long as you're polite and, and offer the small things that we can offer each other, then life becomes very positive sum. So humans have this big advantage that we can help each other via information. You know, if you're wandering along and you can't find the building that you're trying to get to or you don't know where the bakery is or whatever, and you ask me as a local resident, I can tell you in a few seconds and say, that. And so we have this enormous advantage of, of that our communicative abilities allow us to live scattered among strangers, but still in this very positive some world. Nonetheless, we then have to develop reputational mechanisms if we're going to, um, you know, put ourselves at risk. And interestingly, the internet has allowed us to do that. It's created a sharing economy whereby I can be an Uber driver. And then if you get in and throw up in the back of my car, I give you a lousy rating and no one will give you a ride again. Now that puts pressure on you to not get too drunk. So you'll throw up in my car. And same with them renting my Airbnb and all those other things. Our ancestors had that process in place because they knew each other. And what we have done is we developed these reputational mechanisms that work really well, even when we don't know each other. Now, of course, they can be exploited. But it turns out that nonetheless, even though they can be exploited, people on average who are friendly and polite and helpful, they win almost every time. Wow. So it's almost like technology has brought us full circle back to yeah, where we're. Yeah, it really has. Um, the next one's from Cyan, and Cyan has asked, what happened with inequality in storytelling? Did like did we stop sharing information to retain a better position? This, this is yes, with so agriculture, by the way. Yes. So information is, you know, knowledge is power. And there's definitely lots of knowledge that we're not going to tell people. So where the, where's the gold buried and, you know, and, and all sorts of things like that. We're going to keep them secret if, they, if they're really opportunities for us. But... The big change in humans compared to chimpanzees is that we're incredibly nice to people in our close groups, 
but we're not that much nicer to people outside our groups. And in fact, if you look at chimpanzee violence compared to human violence, we they're about 500 times as violent with, as we are within their groups, but they're, we're just as violent as they are. It's a one-to-one ratio between groups. So it's certainly the case that we don't share knowledge across groups very well. We're very careful about doing so. And you can look at half the conflicts that exist in the world today, and they're really about sharing information across groups. You know, look at what's happening today with the UK and China, for example, um, arguing about copyrights and all sorts of things like that. Um, and spying and embassies being closed down, all that kind of thing. That's human nature. We don't share very well across groups. But so long as there's, you know, if, if you come to me and you're trying to find the bakery, it, it's no skin off my nose to tell you. And, and what human beings are really good at is paying it forward. And so we tend to just generally offer these kinds of small amounts of help to strangers all the time. And we're really good about that. And then the only time that we're, that we see a shift is if somebody causes us problems. Instead of paying it forward, if somebody harms us, we specifically go out of our way to seek revenge on them. And interestingly, if you look at small children, when they're in groups and they're helping each other, they don't even worry about who they help in return. But if somebody harms them, they're very careful about trying to harm that same person back. And they don't learn to be helpful to that same person back until a much older age than they learn to be harmful back. And so we have this psychology in place about paying it forward, probably not giving out the most valuable information we have, right? But giving out information that's generally of use to others, except in circumstances where people look like they might be harmful to us. And, as, and across groups is one of those circumstances. That's really interesting. Okay, so the next one's from Roy. Um, Roy has asked, do you think that capitalism as a system was inevitable and a result of our evolution? And do you think that there could be a fair system just in the sense that the top 1% have so much uh, that given our evolution might be successful? Yeah, that's a great question. And so I would say that if you look at the history of Homo sapiens, 99% of it was communism. It wasn't capitalism. It was in small groups sharing everything that we caught. Um, and we're really good about that because in sharp contrast to the chimpanzee-like ancestors that we evolved from, they're very capitalist. They're a strongly hierarchical system. But what humans have evolved is by virtue of our communicative abilities, we've evolved for the large group to, to gang up on the small group of those who have. And so in hunter-gatherer communities, if one person is trying to lord it over everybody else, well, when they go to bed, you know, they don't ever wake up in the morning. Or maybe they just get left and they wake up and everybody's gone. So human beings are really good at leveling the hierarchy because the power of the many always overwhelms the greater individual power of the few. Now, right now, we live in a world that's super-duper capitalistic, and we see inequality growing even dramatically in my lifetime. But I suspect that we're in a world that we're on the cusp of a world where all this changes. So I don't know if you've seen the latest population modeling, but it starts to go down by 2100. And so that means probably the end of growth. And then the second thing that happens is I believe we're on the cusp of free energy. And once you have free energy and, and robotics, which we're also quite good at now, then you have a world where people actually don't need to work anymore because anything that you want can be produced for free. And so everybody's basic needs will be met. And I don't know what that world's going to look like. You know, people find great satisfaction in their work and being bored is not good for humans. But I, I hope and think that the end result of that world, which I probably won't live to see but might, is a world where actually we return to much greater equality. Because if everybody can have whatever they want, then having isn't what matters anymore. Doing is what becomes important. Mm. Really interesting. So the next one here, we've actually had a lot of requests um, about the unhappiness uh, Part of, part okay. of so if you give, just have a quick overview of the key things that make us unhappy. Sure. So what I would say is that um, there's, um, there's really four things that 
that make us unhappy. One um, is that our mind evolved to be able to project itself into the future because it allows us to plan without having to actually do. If a chimpanzee wants to test a plan, it needs to try it. I can sit there in bed at night and just plot how to do whatever I want. I can go 4,000 steps forward, realize that step 391 is a bad one, rewind, go forward and do it again. I can simulate a world that doesn't exist. Now that's super effective as a human. It allows me to survive all sorts of dicey situations because I can plan, but it also causes me to tend to live in a world that doesn't exist. My mind goes forward to the future all the time and it goes back to the past all the time. And both of those are very harmful for happiness because I tend to focus on the bad things I'm trying to avoid in the future and the bad things in the past that I want to learn from. They make me more effective, but they take away my happiness. And so it's really hard, but if you can learn to focus on the moment at hand, you tend to be a lot happier. And of course, that's what a lot of our meditative traditions are about. The second thing that disrupts our happiness is that we actually didn't evolve to be happy, we evolved to achieve. And the data show very clearly that super duper happy people aren't very motivated to achieve. If you look at how happy somebody is and then you track them 20 years later, the people who are going to earn the most money 20 years later are the moderately happy. Those who are depressed tend not to do well because they, they don't have much energy, but those who are super duper happy tend not to do well either. They're kind of these hippies in life who don't go off and strive and work really hard to achieve. And so they kind of get left behind because that's what evolution wants. It wants us to be constantly trying to be productive and rise, and at least compared to our own group, to be bubbling to the top. The third thing is that if, if you look at our DNA, you can track our, our um, male ancestors through our Y-linked DNA and our female ancestors through our mitochondrial DNA, and you can see that we have about twice as many female ancestors as male ancestors. What, what that means is that a couple of guys were doing really well, and lots of guys were getting left out entirely. And so men evolved to take big risks, and they, the, the most dangerous thing about living in, in the industrialized world is being a young male. They take big risks that lead to homicide, killing each other, and they take big risks that just lead to accidents and automobiles and many other ways. Women didn't evolve to take those risks, but those risks are really make good sense from an ancestral perspective, but they are very damaging to happiness. And then the final thing I would talk about is what my colleague Robert Trivers calls phenotypic indulgences. Now, a phenotypic indulgence is your phenotype is your body, not your genotype. It's it's what and your behavior. It's it's what your genes get you to do and what they make you into. And a phenotypic indulgence is something that helps your body but doesn't actually help your genes. So it resembles the things that were important to us in the past, but it's not quite the same. The example I always give is friends were really valuable to us in the past, so they're a real thing, but watching the show Friends is not. It's a phenotypic indulgence. You feel like you have friends when you don't just because they're such fun people. Alcohol is a phenotypic indulgence. Potato chips. They taste like they've got protein in them. They're loaded with fat, but there's no protein, and so we eat them forever. Um, those are the kinds of things that actually are quite disruptive to happiness. They, they can make us happy in the moment we're eating them, but their cost, they don't give us the long-term satisfaction that actually having friends, telling stories with them, eating foods that are good for us, et cetera, really generate for us. And so those are the, the primary things that I would say disrupt happiness in the modern world. That phenotypic indulgence, I've never heard that idea before. That's really, really interesting. Um, from Mahari, um, is there any evolutionary evidence for when all evolved, all as an emotion and as a behavior? You know? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. There, there, um, we know that awe is super fundamental. Um, 
I, I feel it when I go look at the Milky Way. I simultaneously feel like an insignificant, tiny, worthless nothing, which is a bad feeling. But the feeling of awe itself is actually highly generative, and it leads people to lots, do lots of wonderful things. Um, I'm afraid I, I haven't a clue when it evolved, but my guess is that it came along with um, Homo sapiens, and that that kind of complex emotion is unlikely to exist in prior ancestors, but I'm completely guessing. I have no idea. Sorry, I, it's a great question that I can't really answer. No worries. Well, Bill, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Um, it's been a fascinating talk. So thank you very much. Is there anything, anywhere you'd like to send people online, any further resources you'd like them to check out after this talk or anything like so, that? Um, the, you can always hop on. Um, if you Google my surname, which you guys have from the list there, you can find lots of other podcasts and things where I've talked about some of these ideas. Um, as you said at the beginning now, my book, The Social Leap, is available in audio and anywhere the books are bought. And it goes through all this material that I've been discussing today, as well as lots of other implications for leadership, sociality, et cetera, all the other kinds of things that you can't exactly squeeze into an hour and a half talk. So people can find me everywhere on the Internet and they can uh, find the book as well. Um, for anybody that is interested in evolutionary psychology and, and, and this subject, um, Bill's book, The Social Leap, is one of the best, most accessible introductions to the subject I think I've read. So I highly recommend checking that out for everyone watching this today. And again, Bill, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. And we'll speak soon. All right. Thank you. It's been, it's been my pleasure.